Welcome to the Unstoppable CEO Podcast with Steve Gordon. Welcome to the Unstoppable CEO Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Gordon. And in today's episode, we're talking with Mark Monchek. And uh, I'm really excited about this. Uh, Mark's got a new book out, which we're going to get to, um, which I've read, and it's fantastic. Um, but a little bit about Mark. Mark's mission is to empower conscious leaders to build great companies that make a difference in the world. And he founded uh, an organization called the Opportunity Lab, which builds, uh, works with organizations and uh, helps them build organizations that are more conscious and sustainable, really designed to make life better for their employees, their customers, and their communities. And he's worked with leaders from just about every big company you can think of, Google, Apple, General Electric, Goldman Sachs, um, and the list is pretty long. So we won't go through every one of them. But um, Mark, I'm really excited to, to have you here um, to learn more about what you're doing and, and to learn a bit more about your book. So welcome to The Unstoppable CEO. Thanks, Steve. My great pleasure to be with you and I'm excited about your show. I've listened to a number of episodes and uh, it's very inspiring to be able to share the wisdom and the struggles and uh, the unstoppability and the stoppability with you today. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. Well, hey, to give everybody a little bit of context, um, share with us how you got started in business. Well, Steve, I grew up at the intersection of entrepreneurship, psychology and art. So my parents were the only people in my entire extended families that were not in business. Uh, my grandfather was an entrepreneur, escaped the Holocaust, rebuilt a business that was stolen from him in Germany in New York City. Uh, my uncles uh, were in World War II, came back from the war, started a toy company, which is still around in Brooklyn. Uh, all my cousins, my uncles, my aunts were all in business. My father was a uh, psychiatrist. My mother was an artist. So I was always passionate and fascinated with the psychology and the art of entrepreneurship. Why do some entrepreneurs grow, scale their businesses, others fail? Why are some happy, others not happy? Why are some happy and successful and others unhappy and unsuccessful and all those different permutations? So um, I worked in, uh, in the family business. I love the idea of growing and building companies. Uh, I be started a career. Uh, as a psychotherapist, uh, actually understanding the psychology of entrepreneurs and business leaders, and then took that and started working with companies, uh, small companies and larger companies and all sorts of different companies and then nonprofits. So for most of my career, I've been helping companies grow, understand their greatness and understand how to scale based on what we call their success DNA. Very cool. Very cool. So, you know, um, kind of the theme of, of our conversations on, on the podcast center around talking with people who've been in business, who have experience like you have, and, um, and really trying to understand what are some of the things that, that, that you use that break through the barriers that come up? I mean, we all, as business owners, we're running businesses. We, we run into brick wall after brick wall after brick wall, and we either have to go over them, under them, around them, or through them. What are some of the things that, that help you do that in, in your business? Well, see, maybe I can answer that by telling you a, a personal story about a brick wall that I had hit and how I understood the wall. And I was able to, I don't say break through the wall, but sort of um, allow the wall to crumble in my mind. Because I think a lot of the walls we face are more internal perceptions rather than necessarily always external uh, obstacles. <clears throat> so uh, quick story, in 2007, we had our best year in business ever. Uh, I was flying around the country, um, working with some amazing clients, 
came back to start 2008 and found out that one of our employees had stolen an enormous amount of money from us while I was traveling. Uh, this was exactly at the same time that we were seeing uh, thousands and thousands of jobs being lost, uh, home foreclosures, companies going out of business during the worst recession that we've had since the Great Depression in the 1930s. So as the American economy started to crash, I had my own personal crash, uh, almost took my life, wound up in a hospital, woke up out of the hospital, thanking God that I was still alive. The word gratitude came to me, which is one of the first and most important concepts to me for anybody in business, having gratitude for what you have, not always wanting something what you don't have, but really being grateful for the people that have gotten you where you are, uh, whether they be customers, employees, shareholders, or your own family. And then the second word that came to me was opportunity. So I said, what is the opportunity for me in this personal crisis? And what's the opportunity that's happening in the economy right now? Then I started seeing this very unusual phenomenon. I started seeing companies that were iconic brands that were been around for hundreds of years, like uh, Lehman Brothers, like Bear Stearns, uh, companies like Nokia, which is the biggest handset maker in uh, Finland in the world at the time. Blockbuster, Research in Motion, the BlackBerry was the biggest uh, seller of handsets for business. These companies are going out of business or shrinking to a mere shell of their former self. Then you had startup companies like Uber, like Etsy, like Airbnb, um, you know, that were just skyrocketing. Companies like Facebook, which is really in 2008 was only four years old, was uh, rising through this tremendous recession. You know, Apple, Amazon, Zappos, Ted, all these companies were taking off and these other companies were falling off the radar. Why? Because the difference in how they saw the economy. One saw it as a threat, the other saw it as an opportunity. So I saw that the opportunity mindset is a key element that separates people and businesses that can thrive in any economy from those that are sort of uh, you know, fearful about the next bad thing that happens to them. You mentioned the opportunity mindset. That's one of the, the things that you have in your that you talk about in your book as one of the three keys to really becoming an opportunity expert. And how, I know that that's not always present in people, you know. And I've also seen it be cultivated in people. How do you see that that change happening? So for somebody who's maybe facing things and isn't seeing it. How do you see that change happening for them? Or how do you guys, when you work with a client, how do you get them through that? Well, the first step, as I alluded to earlier, is is gratitude. It sounds simple. It sounds trite for some people. But most people have much more success than they have failure. They have many more things going for them than they think they do. And they focus on the thing that's not going right. And they get caught up on the thing that they most want to do that's not happening for them. So if you have a baseline of gratitude and reverence for what you already have, for the things that are already there, just things that we take for granted, the air that you breathe, the food that you have to eat, uh, the place that you have to live that's safe, uh, when you have a baseline of gratitude, that helps you stay grounded and say, all right, I don't have everything I want. I'm having an obstacle. I'm, 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 I'm running into a problem. But I, I have a baseline of something that is still appreciative to me, something that's still valuable to me. So that's the, the, first, the first step is that. The second step is insight. You know, how do you gain insight about something that seems to be confusing? And in the book, we talk about the quiet mind of the conscious leader. So today, you know, we're bombarded by more emails, text messages, social media, 
uh, any kind of stimuli you can imagine. You can't even go to the bathroom without being bombarded with some sort of advertisement or something demanding your attention. So we tell of our clients and in, in, in our own company, you have to spend at least uh, a couple of times a day when you're quiet, when your mind is not looking at anything to do, but it's just quiet, whether you do it through meditation, whether you do it through exercise, whether you do it through being in nature, there's got to be a time when you're shutting down the external stimuli and you're going deeper inside to look at the wisdom that you have. And everybody has an inner wisdom. It's often not looked at and not tapped into, but some of the greatest leaders have gotten through the most difficult times by consulting their inner wisdom. Uh, the, the third thing is consult your advisors, the people that you trust and care about, the people who both know your company but also are not beholden to your company and are uh, courageous enough and honest enough to tell you the truth about your business. We call those people the opportunity team and we recommend that every company has a team of people, some on the inside who work for the company and at least half of them on the outside who are sort of objective, insightful observers that can help challenge your existing reality. That's great. That's very clear. And you know, a lot is, is said, at least over the last several years, a lot has been said in kind of the entrepreneurial community about gratitude. Um, and it's really easy to dismiss it because I, I think for a lot of us, especially, um, you know, if my generation and, and probably older and I'm in, in my early 40s, um, we were kind of taught to just suck it up and be tough and, and uh, you know, yeah, you've got problems, just power through them. And the reflection isn't necessarily there. Um, but I, but going back and being conscious about kind of counting your blessings, you know, for lack of a better way to put it, um, and, and really taking stock of, of what you've accomplished and what you've got. Um, and I don't necessarily mean in terms of, of material or physical, you know, things, but just looking at, at, uh, where you started and, and where you've come to, to me, that, that is my instant antidote for, um, feeling like the world is kind of caving in, you know, um, because most of us, and, and I thank you for pointing that out. Most of us have a whole lot more success in our backgrounds than failure. And, uh, and so it's useful to revisit that. Um, and it's not trite, but I think, I think it's easy to see it that way. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the opportunity team. Um, that, that's really where you sort of start with the book. And, um, and I was, as I was reading that, um, I was really kind of intrigued to see how you've got this mix of outside advisors and people who are internal to your, your organization. Um, and, and you guys, you guys have a, a seven step process for building that team. How does that, how does it work? And, and what, do you advise uh, owners to do as they're looking to, to build this kind of a team? Well, see, the first step is acknowledging that um, by being comfortable and by keeping the status quo, you are on a road to extinction. <clears throat> you have to accept the fact that in an age of disruption, and I think we're going to be in a constant age of disruption. I don't know if disruption is ever going to go away. Um, there's got to be a organic, resilient mindset that you're ready for uh, disruptions, you're ready for massive changes, 
and you're ready to understand that your organization has to be resilient. In order to have that mindset of resilience, you have to have a constant flood of new ideas and people who challenge the way you've always done things. And that's how the whole idea of the opportunity team starts is you look at the people inside your company. Which are the people that are the most strategic? Which are the people that complement you as the CEO, your skill set, the people who do things that you can't do? who have an opinion and, and a, an insight that may be different from the way you see things. So what we're trying to get away from is the single CEO who dominates and commands and controls the company, because that is really no longer sustainable. It may have worked in the days of Henry Ford or John D. Rockefeller or you know Thomas Edison, uh, Andrew Carnegie, but it, it doesn't work in today's world anymore. So you've got to have a collaborative culture, and in order to have a collaborative culture, you've got to have a diverse set of skills, attitudes, and ideas. Uh, then you got to look outside your companies, which people are key to our existence, which are the key stockholders, the key advisors, the key suppliers, the key customers, that we value their input and we want them on our team. And we want them to be able to contribute not only their skills, their their insight, and also their network. Uh, because the, the more connected you are, the more powerful you are in this in this networked age. Yeah, without a doubt, without a doubt. Um, and so, as the team is is coming together, you guys have you have some criteria around who to look for and and really what you want them, kind of the the capabilities you're, you're hoping will be brought to bear. Uh, can you talk a little bit about those? Uh, yeah. They're, they need to be strategic, meaning they need to have a, a mindset of growth and of strategic growth, not just growth in the status quo, but growth leveraging your strengths and the opportunities out in the marketplace. They have to have competencies and skills that complement your existing team and yourself. So you, want, you don't want to have everybody that has marketing skills. You want to have marketing skills. You want to have technology skills. You want to have business development skills, operational skills, financial skills, you know, the whole set, and if you don't have it in your team, then you look outside and who can complement the, you know, the people on the inside. You also have to have people who are brutally honest and that they're willing to tell you the truth, uh, hopefully in a kind way. So sort of uh, brutally but kind honesty is, is we find the best kind that, that is received uh, the most effectively by the company. So uh, strategic thinkers, uh, competencies that complement your team, and the willingness to be honest and telling the truth. Those are the three main criteria that we look for. I want to take a really quick break. I want uh, everybody who's listening to hang on a second. We're going to be right back with more from Mark and uh, we're going to really dive into uh, into his book um, on, on opportunity. The, this, you're going to want to stick around for this because he's going to talk hopefully about uh, so, some of the key parts of the book, um, particularly scaling and uh, and and more on on becoming a conscious leader. So hang on, we'll be right back. Hi, this is Steve. I hope you're enjoying this interview. We've got more to come in a minute, but what I'd love for you to do right now is rate this podcast. Leave us a review, rate us on iTunes. It'll really help others discover the podcast and help us help other CEOs, other business leaders become unstoppable. So if you go to unstoppableceo.net forward slash iTunes, you can find instructions there and links that will take you right to where you need to go to review the podcast. Thanks so much. Now back to the interview. All right. Welcome back. We're here with Mark Monchek, the author of Culture of Opportunity. 
And uh, Mark, you, you've shared a ton already. Um, I think the the idea of opportunity team um, is a smart one, and I think a real breakthrough for a lot of organizations. Um, as I was going through the book, one of the things that that really kind of stood out to me is you talk about scale. And you talk about the challenge of scaling a business and you used a phrase in there that I don't think I've heard before. Um, you used a, the, the phrase is appropriate scale for your business. And it seems like everywhere you go right now, the, the way the word scale is used is in, in the context of growth for growth's sake. And, and it's all about scaling. And I'd love to get your thoughts on on really what you mean by appropriate scale and how you approach scaling a business. Uh, great question, Steve. Thank you. Uh, when I think of appropriate scale, I think it's got to be appropriate to the purpose, the life purpose or the mission of the owners of the company and the, the, the people who are driving that, that scale. So if your purpose is <clears throat> to have an impact by making your customers uh, so much happier and having so much of a better life. And in order to do that, it depends on scale. So let's say if you're, if you're Airbnb and you want to make sure that anybody around the world wants to be able to travel and have an affordable place to stay, well, then you need to have a, a big scale, right? You need to be able to do that on a very, very large global scale. If you're purpose is that you want to make a difference in your hometown and you live in a small town of 15,000 people and you want to make sure that you have an opportunity for employment for people in that town and that the town's uh, needs are supported, well, you don't necessarily need to be a global company and you don't have to have a big company in terms of a lot of employees. You just have to be effective in your local area where you do business. So I think it starts with the what is your life purpose and what how is that being expressed in your business. That's sort of how I think about uh, what appropriate scale is. Uh, the second element is what are the resources that you have in order to scale? So I think the old mindset was we have to build everything, own everything, do everything ourselves, right? And so hence you have to scale. You have to have a lot of people to do that. You got to have a lot of money to do that. You got to have a lot of um, presence out in the marketplace. But if you realize, Steve, that your resources, the most powerful resources you have are not inside your company, but they're in the vast interconnected network all over the world, you don't have to own it, you don't have to do it, and you don't even have to necessarily have it within your physical grasp, right? So uh, let's look at an algorithm that you can find deeply buried into LinkedIn. So I have a roughly 2,000 direct connections on LinkedIn, you're one of them, right? So if I was to send an email out about Unstoppable CEO and say, this is the greatest show ever, and if you don't watch this show in your lifetime, your life would have been a waste, <clears throat> I send it out to my 2,000 people, and I ask them to send it out to their connections, and then their connections, just three degrees of separation from me, not my company, just from me, I could reach roughly about 15 million people. If you understand the exponents, you understand that you have all the resources that you need as small a company as you are to do whatever you need to do. Now, I'm not saying it's easy to access them, but first you have to understand that reality. Secondly, you have to say, all right, where can I find my next customer? 
Where do I find my next employee? Where do I find my next investor? Well, the chances are they're already three degrees of separation from you. So the one of the tools that we use is this resource mapping tool where we actually map the ecosystem of an organization or a person by mapping the people that they're most important to that organization. People broken down to three categories, connectors, experts, and accelerators, organizations that you're affiliated with, markets that you do business in, sources of capital, knowledge, and communication. And when you see all of those resource categories on a map and you see how interconnected you are, you go, aha, now I know that my next customer is not a gazillion years away and not hundreds of thousands of dollars in marketing fees, but it's actually an understanding uh, where I can find that customer. And if I can look at my previous customer and say, you know what, we've gotten uh, 20% of our customers through one referral source. I haven't talked to that guy in uh, six months. You know, maybe that if I start having a relationship and sharing what I can give to him, I will get even more referrals. So, right. So it's a mindset. It's, it's an abundance mindset versus the scarcity mindset, an opportunity mindset versus a threat mindset. Well, and, and you take it a step beyond just saying, you know, you've got to have an abundance mindset. You have a lot, you have a lot of people that will say, oh, you just need to, you know, think abundance. And, you know, maybe maybe the implication is, you know, sit in the corner and meditate on, you know, on the million dollars that you want to show up in the middle of the room. But what I see is you take a little bit of a different approach you're actually working with an organization to have them document the abundance that is around them, that that is theirs in all of these different categories, which I think is is uh, it's a really powerful thing if you sit, can sit down and take stock of really all of the resources that you have. Because I think most of us forget, most of us maybe ignore or, or don't acknowledge that we have some of the resources that we really have. So I, I think going through that, that exercise and making it conscious is really valuable. Uh, it's it's incredibly powerful, Steve, <clears throat> and it, it's even more powerful when you do it as a group, right? Because what you have yourself is is really vast, but you put six or seven people in a room that have different networks and connect to them. Now it gets to be incredibly exciting. Uh, can I can I tell you a quick story about how I understood the power of these networks? Absolutely. So we were working with a client, a literacy, a nonprofit literacy assistance agency in New York back in 2011. They wanted to create a level of awareness, a national level of awareness of the issue of adult illiteracy in the United States. It's a massive crisis that we don't really talk enough about. In New York City, which is you think of as a fairly highly educated urban center, uh, one out of three New Yorkers are functionally illiterate, meaning they could read a newspaper, but they couldn't necessarily balance their checkbook. They couldn't necessarily figure out what their prescription said and the, the different implications of the medications they're taking. They couldn't. They don't read on a very uh, sophisticated level. So this organization wanted to bring out this level of awareness and create the first ever national summit on adult literacy. And they said, Mark, we want you to want to use the culture of opportunity process to do that, but we don't know how to go about it. We want to get people who are really well known to do this. So we did, we did the first resource map and the first resource map, uh, you know, they had, um, 26 people, significant number, 17 organizations, five markets. They were in tons of knowledge. I mean, an enormous amount of knowledge, communication, really good communication, only three sources of capital. 
So we said, all right, let's do a second exercise. And rather than just have a four or five people in the inner circle do it, let's broaden it out to all of the board members and all the employees. Second, uh, the, and, and we said, let's create a burning platform. We want you to say, who would you contact? What resources would you bring to the table if you had to raise $3 million in three months where the organization would go out of business? So it psychologically heightened people's awareness and motivation. So suddenly, 17 new sources of capital came on the map. Wow. Like that. Three of them with the last name of Soros, as in George Soros and his two children. So now the room is quiet. Everybody's thinking, where the heck did these 17 new sources of capital come? So in the back of the room, a very shy woman who was head of the, the, the director of curriculum raised her hand and said, I know George Soros and his two children. The room exploded into tumult. What do you mean you know George Soros? Well, how come you never said anything? We're like starving for, for funding. How come you never mentioned? And then the pin dropped when she said, Steve, Nobody ever asked me. Now, this is a nonprofit of 15 employees where they sit four or five feet one from one another. It was an aha moment that said that people do not have a mechanism nor a mindset to share their resources. And when you give them that, you start to, to create the possibility of exponential growth. Yeah, without a doubt. So they, they had the national summit. They had a Pulitzer Prize winner from the New York Times. They had uh, AARP executives. We screened a film uh, that was shown on CNN. Uh, we had funders, university professors, and it was amazing. And they got the word out there, developed some funding, developed their brand, all because they were able to see and access the resources as a team. That's brilliant. Um, and actually – you know, set off a connection for me immediately. You know, most of our work is with uh, with entrepreneurs on on referrals, and the constant frustration is the fact that they don't get you know organic referrals, and a lot of people just don't. Um, but but the same thing is at, at play there, because the that client that you want to refer you, you know, isn't necessarily going to just automatically think to connect you with one of one of their resources, somebody in their network, right? Because they haven't been asked or they haven't been asked in the right way. So I think it's it, it's a perfect point and, and we see that play out in a lot of different areas. So one last thing that I'd like to, to touch on um, and then I want to make sure everybody knows where to find the book because it's an excellent book and and uh, you need to go get it. But um, you talk about the, the idea of the conscious leader and you've already mentioned part of that, which is kind of getting quiet and, and, and tapping into internal wisdom. But I know there's a little bit more to it. So tell me a little bit about as a listener, how can, how can somebody begin to move towards becoming a more conscious leader? Um, it's a great question. And I hope I can articulate this in a short period of time because I could spend hours talking about it. Uh, Steve, I think the first concept is having a sense of reverence, a sense of real respect for the living world, meaning for people, for the resources, the air, you know, nature that allows us to live, and for the, 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 the customers, the, the employees, the communities that support your business. I think having that reverence, not to take it for granted, not to say that 
we can just disregard that. And whatever happens to our employees, it doesn't matter. Whatever happens to our communities, it doesn't matter. Our customers, if we deeply care about them, then that creates a level of consciousness that will then bring that caring back to you as a company. It's no longer sustainable that you can uh, ravage the earth of natural resources and not put anything back. It's no longer sustainable that you can lay off employees and not care what happens to them. It's no longer sustainable that you can you know, take resources like education and transportation from a community and then leave and go and, 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 and not care about what happens to them. So a lot of the book is about sustainable growth. So to me, consciousness starts with a reverence and respect for what you have been given as an entrepreneur, which is to me a lot that the fact that you have the ability to start a business um, means that there's a responsibility to do good with that business. So you've used the word sustainable a number of times. What does sustainable growth mean to you? How do you define it? Sustainable growth uh, has a, a multiple uh, aspects to it. One is nature, you know, that you're not uh, taking from nature and harming the environment. The other is people, that you are not uh, taking from people more than you're giving back to them. And the third is that as you scale and start to add customers, add infrastructure, add people, that what you're doing now can exist and will be effective at that larger scale. Right. So... In the book, uh, the, the best case study of sustainability that I've ever heard is the story of Ray Anderson, uh, the founder and CEO of Interface, a carpet company uh, which is still existing and is still a phenomenal company in Atlanta, Georgia. And you know, he, he looked at sustainability from zero impact, and which is a, an extraordinary high bar for an industrial company that basically makes a carbon-infused um, product, industrial carpet. Can I can I pause you right there for just a second, Please. just to give everybody a little bit of context? So, and they're based in Atlanta, Georgia, which is actually not too far from from where I live, about four hours north of us. It's in the Deep South, um, and I know that culture well. I grew up in it. It is not a place you would ever expect for a CEO who is of the generation that that he's in, because you've got his picture in the book, um, and. It's just not a place where you would expect that to come from. So for everybody, I want to give you context for that. This is, uh, and I want, then I want you to con kind of continue and fill in the story with how he came to that that point because I think it's it's important how he got there um, because he didn't start there at sustainability. He didn't come from that place, but he 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 came there for a very pragmatic and practical reason. So with that kind of context, I'd love for you to kind of fill out the rest of that story. Um, sure. So uh, Ray Anderson started his company Interface in 1973. By roughly 1993, about 94, I think it was in business 21 years, it was uh, doing business in 110 countries. It was a Fortune uh, 500 company. Uh, it was quite successful. And a customer in Southern California uh, asked one of the sales reps, what are you doing about the environment? This is well before the environment got into the, the business ideology, you know, that it was important to be environmentally conscious. So it got back to Ray and Ray said, well, we're, we're, um, we're complying with all the laws. What should we be doing? You know, we're, we're doing everything that the EPA is telling us we have to do, that OSHA is telling us we have to do. Uh, it, it kept getting louder and um, 
James Hartsfeld, who was a young MBA, was charged with putting together a um, task force to sort of make this thing go away. So like, you know, make it cosmetically. We're doing something about it, but we don't care about it just as long as the customers think we're doing something about it. So so Ray is going to give this speech that he doesn't want to give. And he goes back to his uh, office and he sees this book called The Ecology of Commerce by Paul Hawken, which was the first really important book about the importance of sustainability in business back in, in that uh, day, 1993, I believe. Um, he makes his speech and he says in front of his employees, because he is hit with a spear in the chest moment, that he, he reads the book and he finds out that he's been dumping millions of tons of carpet into landfills and polluting the environment for the last 20 years. He's a very religious man. He teaches Sunday school and he realizes that God has called him to change his business model and make it sustainable, zero impact by 2020, which they will they will achieve in, in uh, three years. Uh, and they started growing it, but he said, you know what? It's gotta be profitable and it's gotta make us a stronger company financially and our shareholders have to benefit. So the stock immediately dropped. Everybody said, you're crazy, it's impossible, you can't do it. Uh, but the stock tripled over the last, I think the 10 years after he did it, uh, the gross profit went up, uh, the costs of production went down and he, he proved at scale that you can create a sustainable company in an industrial uh, sector of the economy. Uh, unfortunately, Ray died in 2011 of cancer, which is you know one of the diseases he was trying to prevent from having his company be, be more sustainable. Uh, it was just a very inspiring story. I met Ray for about five seconds at a conference. I said hello to him and thank you. And I went down and I interviewed his grandson. I interviewed the current CEO who was the CFO at the time. Ray was uh, doing this Mission Zero. And I interviewed Jim Hartsfeld, who's also uh, noted in the book. So if you want to talk about sustainability and a company that's led that way, I think Interface is one of the most important examples of that. Well, what I like about that is the, the, the decision was made not only to be sustainable from the perspective of the environment, but also from the perspective of the business. He had at least the wisdom to say, if we're going to do this, it's got to be profitable. It's got to benefit all of the economic uh, stakeholders as well as as the environment, um, because otherwise it's not long term sustainable uh, for a business. So um, I was really struck by that story. And, and I thank you for uh, for finding it and for sharing it in the book. So where can folks get the book? Um, and I, I really recommend that, that you get it if you're listening. It's an outstanding read. Well, uh Stephen, today's day and age of, of everybody being overwhelmed with too much to do, it is a short book. It's 142 pages. It is something you can read from New York to Washington, from Boston to New York, from, you know, uh, on, on a long weekend like this Memorial Day weekend. So it's on Amazon. You just search for Mark Monchek, a search for Culture of Opportunity. Uh, it is in print. It will be in Kindle in a few days. Um, and, uh, you can find out more about the book on either on Amazon or you go to our website, oplab.com, O-P-P-L-A-B.com. You can find us on Twitter, at oplab. Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. Uh, a lot of different ways you can connect with us. Yeah, and uh, not only is it a, a great read, it's uh, it's an easy read. It is, it is short, but the way you've laid it out and formatted it, you can get right to the information that you need really quickly. And, um, and at the end, you've got this toolkit that uh, for anybody that reads it and then wants to begin 
uh, kind of going through the processes, they can begin asking the questions and, and going through the process right there at the end of the book, which uh, I, I think is a, a brilliant little addition there that more books should have. Yeah, I mean, you can actually start building your opportunity team in the toolkit. You can start looking at your resource map and start uh, fleshing out your resource ecosystem. You can identify your success DNA. It's a, it's a really, really powerful uh, toolkit. And then, of course, if you want to help have us help you do it in your company, we can also support that as well. But uh, whatever way you want to do it, we're, we're supportive of that. And thank you uh, for having a great show. I love your show. I love the idea of the unstoppable CEO and, and all the things that you do to help CEOs get inspired when they get stopped. Because as we know, uh, there's a lot of stops along the way. It's not all, uh, it's not all unstoppable. That's right. That's right. Well, uh, Mark Machek, thank you for uh, investing some time with me today. The book is Culture of Opportunity. Get it on Amazon. And you can find Mark at oplab.com, O-P-P-L-A-B.com. Mark, thanks so much. Thank you, Steve. Really appreciate your uh, great interview. Really, really uh, grateful for that. Thanks for listening to the Unstoppable CEO Podcast. Help others discover this show. Leave a review and rating on iTunes at unstoppableceo.net forward slash iTunes.